Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican. This week, we're taking a look back at 2021 in Vatican News. I'm Colleen Deli. This is Inside the Vatican. Good morning from New Orleans, Jerry. Good afternoon from a cold but sunny, beautiful day in Rome, Colleen. Our listeners can't see it, but you still have your coat and your scarf on. (laughs) Well, uh, I'm reflecting the outside temperature, Colleen. Yes, yes. amid the ruins of Mosul on Sunday. In the city once occupied by ISIS and still dangerous. Let's take you live to Bratislava. We can join our correspondent there, Rob Cameron. It's been quite a trip, Rob, for the Pope. Four days he's had in Slovakia, a long time for him to spend in one country. How was he received today? Pope has been meeting refugees on the island of Lesbos and touring a temporary reception center there that was set up after the well-known Mariah camp burned down last year. All right, let's get started with our recap of the year in Vatican news. I think the first thing that we like to talk about every year when we do these is the trips that the Pope made this year. And that was a big, big question this year, given that we're still in the COVID pandemic around all these trips up to weeks before there were still questions about whether the Pope would be able to travel. But he ended up making trips to Iraq, to Hungary and Slovakia. And then most recently, we just talked about this to Cyprus and Greece. And Jerry, I guess I wanted to talk to you about kind of some of the through lines that connect each of these trips. You know, I I know we've talked a lot about the interreligious and inter or ecumenical dimensions of these trips. Pope Francis is doing a lot of outreach in Iraq to Muslim leaders, in Hungary and Slovakia, not so much because they're Catholic majorities, but then in Cyprus and Greece, again, there was a lot of outreach to the Orthodox. I was wondering about the through lines that you see between these trips. Well, first of all, the uh, let's say the shadow over all the trips was the COVID pandemic. Of course. And we had to get vaccinated way back in February in the Pope in the beginning in January. And uh, this time, too, for the last trip, we many of us have had the third vaccination, the booster. Right. And the Pope is also believed to have gotten the booster. Yes, yes. I, I think there's no doubt about it. Remember, Colleen, that it's he's uh, walking on thin ice sometimes because we've seen that when he was in Budapest, mm-hmm. several people who participated in the National International Eucharistic Congress there in September actually got COVID. Yeah, and it's raised a lot of questions about whether it's even wise to take such trips, but we've really seen the Pope this year emphasizing 
as he always does with his papal trips, trying to go to the margins. And that felt especially present this year in his trips to Iraq, you know, which is such a a war-torn country. And then in Hungary and Slovakia, when he visited the Roma community, which has faced so much discrimination, so much inequality, and in Cyprus and Greece, drawing attention to migrants and refugees. I think that, you know, the Pope's justification for making these trips might be saying that he wants to draw attention to people who are marginalized, who are hit particularly hard by the inequalities that have been exacerbated during COVID. His message basically to the world, I think, but also to the countries he's visiting is that, you know, we have to live with reality and we have not to allow the difficulties to so overcome us that we become paralyzed. Mm -hmm. And he has refused to be paralyzed by this situation. He's taking precautions, but he also consults with the governments before they go. And when we went to Iraq, the people there were really so grateful that the Pope has came. He had the big first foreign leader mm-hmm. to visit the country and to offer a message of hope. Right. He, he wasn't coming selling guns or uh, selling other kind of uh, hate speech or whatever. Mm-hmm. He, he was coming with a message of peace and hope, and this was greatly appreciated. Jerry, you mentioned a few of the Pope's trips going forward. Where is he looking to go next year? Well, there are several on the horizon, Colleen. We don't have confirmation for any of them yet, but the Pope himself has said that he wants to respect a commitment he made two years ago before the pandemic struck when he was planning to go to Papua New Guinea. Indonesia, Timor-Leste, and probably also Singapore. And I think this is still on his agenda. Okay. Uh, secondly, I, there is, of course, uh, the, he's long wanted to go to South Sudan with the Archbishop of Canterbury and the moderator of the Church of Scotland. And uh, that is still very much on his agenda. It depends on the political situation in the country. Uh, if he goes there, he's very likely also to go to another war-torn war country where, where we've seen massive human rights violations, also violations against women, uh, rape and war and such like, uh, the, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And uh, so if he goes to South Sudan, he will do that, I am told. Uh, whether it will happen again, it depends on the political situation. He wants to go to the Lebanon. The question is, is will there be a government? Obviously, he can occur if there's not a government, uh, and I mean a functioning government, not just a nominal government. So the situation in that country is really it's a major crisis. People don't have electricity uh, for a few hours a day, the gas, uh, water, uh, many people leaving the country. It, it is a real crisis situation. And uh, But Francis wants to bring, as I said, a message of hope, a peace, and to draw the world's attention to the dramatic situation that in which people are living. Now he also has other invitations. He's got one to India, but whether he goes in 2022 or 2023, it's not clear, but certainly he will go. Got it. The Vatican says Pope Francis will give his weekly Sunday blessing from the hospital as he recovers from surgery. Officials say the Pope is eating regularly and walking around after undergoing surgery to remove part of his colon on Sunday. Our next big story for the year was about Pope Francis's health. As we know, Pope Francis had a colon surgery on July 4th, and then he spent 
a week recovering in the hospital and took it a little bit easier the rest of the summer. Jerry, you've said that he's been looking well on his trips. We believe that he's boosted for COVID, as we mentioned. But I wanted to ask you about kind of ongoing effects about the Pope's recovery. You know, is he back to eating normally? Is he walking okay? Is he uh, is he having any difficulty recovering? Look, Colleen, I, I would say two things. One, I have seen him at an audience when he gave that uh, award to the two journalists, Phil Pulella and Valentina Alsaraki. We were an hour in, in the audience hall with him, so you could watch close up and see how he was. I've been on the trips with him in September and now in, with, in Greece and in Cyprus and watched him close up as well and seen him at the press conference and you know said hello to him and all this. And I can assure you, he is in very good form. He is now better, in my estimation, and in the estimation of many people I've spoken to in the Vatican, in better health than he was before he went to Iraq, when he had that problem of the colon before he went to Iraq. To answer your question, he's in good health for a man of 80, soon to be 85 on Friday. He is, uh, I'm told he's eating better now than he was before. He's, he still has his problem in terms of walking, uh, you, you see, that sometimes is more difficult. But he, he has treatment for that every every couple of weeks. And, uh, right, he's in physical therapy. For yes, that. physiotherapy and such like. And uh, so uh, there is no reason for some of the uh, reports I've seen. That I've seen somebody writing, the Pope is dying and this kind of thing. This is junk, Colin, junk. Yeah. There is absolutely no uh, conclave on the horizon. There is no resignation on the horizon. Francis is in for some more years as leader of the Catholic Church. So there's no conclave on the horizon, but Francis has really been kind of shoring up his legacy by starting this global synod on synodality. This was announced in the spring and started very quickly in the fall. Uh, and it's this worldwide listening effort that's going to last from 2021 this year until 2023. As we've been talking about, it has a diocesan listening phase and then it has a continental phase. Everything's going to be kind of summed up on a national level, then sent to the continental level to be debated. And then in 2023, we'll see a big meeting in Rome for the worldwide church phase. And as we've kind of talked about, we don't really know what the ending of this process is going to look like. We're getting a lot of language from the Vatican about, you know, being open to the Holy Spirit. We don't know exactly what what's going to happen with this. And Jerry, you and I have talked a lot about how this is really the start of a process. So in terms of the big questions that this leaves us with, I'm kind of still stuck on this question of, can it work? <laughs> I'm curious what your, what your big takeaways about this story are. Well, first of all, this is an idea that Francis had effectively from the beginning. If you go back to the first programmatic document that he published in November 2013, The Joy of the Gospel, uh, Francis talks there about the need to really uh, change the way, the culture, the way of doing things, to find uh, new ways to be a missionary church. Mm -hmm. And so he says, we've got to really look at all the things we have been doing and saying, is this necessary? 
Is there another way of doing it? And so this will involve not just the priest and the bishop doing a top-down instruction. Francis wants all the people of God, that's the lay women, lay men, the religious women and men, mm -hmm. all the people, and also those who are would technically be excluded, uh, the, the, the ones on the margins of society. He, he wants to hear from them, you know, uh, how can the church really serve you better? What, what, what do you think the church should be doing that it's not doing? What do you think the church should abandon? Mm -hmm. And so it, it's, first of all, it's a listening to each other. He calls it mutual listening. Right. So, so nobody comes in with a fixed agenda that they want to impose. That is not what synodality is about. It means, first of all, getting together in small groups and in bigger groups, in the diocese, in the parishes, across the world. Secondly, listening to each other, then gathering the ideas, and then trying to discern mm -hmm. what is the message that's coming through. What is the Holy Spirit saying to us through these encounters? Well, what is the Spirit saying to the church in this local parish, this local diocese, this country at this time in history. Mm -hmm. And then consequential on that will be the decisions. I know that, you know, one thing that we've talked a lot about is that Pope Francis really believes that even just having these meetings on the local level can transform the local community. Like this process of coming together and listening and mutual respect and kind of sharing your own experience courageously can be a transformative experience in itself, no matter what effect it ends up having in 2023. And I, it is, it's such a, it's such a big change of dynamic, like you were saying. And I wanted to ask you, you know, since you've been in this Vatican world for so long, and this is such a kind of big new thing, I wonder if you think it can actually have you know, the the effects that the Pope wants it to have. Do you think that these kinds of transformative meetings can actually transform people? I, I say two things, Colleen. One, what I've seen in the Vatican. I've covered the Vatican now for decades. Yeah. And yeah. what I have seen there is bishops' conferences coming to the Vatican every five years. In the past, they were like schoolboys bringing their, you know, homework <laughs> to have it marked and maybe to get slapped on the wrist. Mm -hmm. Francis has changed completely that dynamic. You talk to any of the bishops who have been on these meetings with him. They now come, they, they go to one Vatican office after another, and, and the head of the office says, you know, we're here, we're, we'd like to hear what you have to say. It's not that they're, you know, laying down the law as soon as you come in or chastising you for what you they think you have done wrong. There's a change of culture in the Vatican. I've seen this, and I think the bishops' conferences around the world have welcomed this. And do you really you think that's throughout the Vatican and not just in these meetings with the Pope? Yes, yes, it's throughout the Vatican. Uh, and because uh, they know that if they treat the bishops badly, the bishops will raise it in the meeting with the Pope. He, he sits <laughs> down with them, and there's no agenda. In the past, they would meet the Pope, and the Pope would have a prepared speech, which had put in, brought in all the notes from the different Vatican offices, and then he'd be laying down the law. That day is over. Mm -hmm. 
and the Pope sits and says, now I'm here. I want you to ask what you want, say what you want, speak openly, speak boldly, and I will try and answer and say for what's on my mind, and I will try and respond to your questions. And this is greatly appreciated. So that's one change I have seen. Secondly, I have seen what has happened in the Amazon Synod. There you really saw a very different synodal process. And you saw, I was at 85,000 people were involved in the lead up to that synod, people in little villages, in, in communities, in groups right across the, uh, was it seven countries of the Amazon region? Yeah, they did a huge, huge listening effort beforehand and sent people out even to these remote villages just with tape recorders to gather information and gather feedback from, from groups in these villages. Yes, I, I think Francis is making us conscious of First of all, we're a universal church, that the situation is very different in, from one country to another, and that we have to find new ways of relating to each other. He's trying a new dynamic in the church, a dynamic to give, make it missionary, to reach out. He says not to condemn, not to judge, but to reach out, to listen, to try and encourage, to bring hope, to this is what it's about. So I've seen, as I said, two instances, the change in the culture in the Vatican and the real dynamic that was unleashed in the Amazon Synod. And now I expect new dynamics to be unleashed in different countries around the world. And we will see the uh, at least the first fruits of that in October 2023, when we have the Synod of Bishops in Rome, the Assembly of Bishops in Rome, who will be bringing together the first fruits. centers around whether Roman Catholic politicians who also support abortion rights should be allowed to receive communion. A decision would not only affect President Biden, others like... This year, we also saw uh, a very different kind of dynamic play out between the Vatican and the U.S. bishops. So President Biden was inaugurated in January, a week after the Capitol insurrection, a really, really dramatic time in U.S. history. And Right off the bat, we saw the president of the U.S. Bishops Conference, Archbishop Gomez, and Pope Francis send very different messages about uh, President Biden's inauguration. We saw, you know, Gomez really highlighting the places where they differed in their beliefs and Francis sending a very uh, kind of understanding and congratulatory message. And throughout the year, we saw debate go on uh, among the U.S. bishops about Drafting a document on Eucharistic coherence is what they called it. So raising this question of whether pro-choice politicians should be allowed to receive communion. And we saw a back and forth between the U.S. bishops and the Vatican on this. The Vatican said, hey, maybe, you know, slow down on drafting the document, have a dialogue amongst yourselves, have a dialogue with the people who are affected by it, with the politicians in question. And uh, kind of over time, you know, Pope Francis even stepped into the situation more in response to your question. He he weighed in and he said that he had never denied communion to anyone and that he thought that, you know, pastors should be pastors even for the excommunicated. And 
I wanted to zoom out to kind of the the big Vatican-U.S. relationship here and ask you, Jerry, how you think that changed this year, or if you think it changed? Well, I, I think there was a big surprise at the beginning because uh, uh, people in the Vatican were shocked, I think, at what they saw on Capitol Hill on the 6th of January. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And they saw, they've been watching the reduction of democracy in so many parts of the world. And then they saw it in the, in the major democracy, the United States, the, the, the same thing happened. And then they say, see the bishops coming in on a single issue, big, important as it is, but single issue. And the, 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 I think this surprised them as well, that uh, the, 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 the bishops were kind of so single issue when they, there were so many other big, situations and the climate change and the and they were happy with the the i think the change of climate between the u.s administration and the vatican and the it opened many possibilities for cooperation more than in the past than the previous one then of course the the bishops went continued on this focus on the abortion on the denial of communion and the, the, I think the Vatican became rather uh, concerned that the conference was, in fact, being more polarized and reflecting the polarization in the political society. And I, I think there was a great relief in Rome when in the November meeting, the bishops, in fact, uh, got out of this box into which they had put themselves and recovered their freedom to address more questions. And the bishops themselves seem relieved because they applauded at the end. And I I think maybe that's an opening of a new phase in the bishops' conference now where they they realized they have racism as a big problem in the country. They have climate change. They have the question of arms. Nobody's talking about it. I I think there's now real hope after the November meeting that they will come back to look at the broader world in which we're living and then also involve themselves in the question of synodality. And so you had the Cardinal Grish uh, speaking to the bishops on this question and saying, because it's if the church can recover unity and its missionary dynamic, then it can help to overcome the polarization in the country. But if the church keeps the polarization and embeds it in its own community, then the hope for contributing to harmony and unity in the country and in the world is going to be gravely diminished. The trial begins at the Vatican today of a Roman Catholic cardinal who used to be a close ally of Pope Francis. Cardinal Angelo Becciu faces accusations. The last big Vatican story of this year was that trials are uh, now underway relating to the Vatican's Sloan Avenue real estate scandal. So this was the case in which the Vatican purchased a share in a real estate development in a wealthy neighborhood in London, uh, only to end up losing a lot of money on the investment and To get out of the deal, they had to buy out the entire building, which made a lot of money for their middleman, like a suspicious amount of money for their middleman. And so now we're having trials relating to that scandal. And there's a high-ranking Vatican official who is on trial, uh, Cardinal Angelo Becciu, who was removed from his position in the Congregation for the Causes of Saints in the Vatican. And he was stripped of his privileges as a cardinal, except for the title. 
while he's on trial right now for embezzlement and abuse of office. And this was really big news in the Vatican. We uh, talked about this back when he was removed from office. He was somebody who was really trusted by the Pope. And our listeners might remember that Pope Francis actually kind of extended an olive branch by celebrating the Holy Thursday liturgy, washing washing the feet liturgy at Betu's apartment this spring. And Jerry, you were at the most recent session of the trial this morning. What's what's happening with that right now? Well, Colleen, it's almost eight months since this trial began. And it hasn't really gone anywhere. <laughs> and we still are in the pre-trial mode, discussing who exactly is being charged. The prosecution is still in the phase of shoring up its position and reaching conclusions on who is to be charged and for what. Some of the charges are already clear. Some of the people will all 10 be charged. We we, we will know this on the 20th of January. The judge this morning, he concluded the, 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 the morning's hearings after 10 minutes. And he said, uh, the prosecution have said that they will bring in their final conclusions on the 20th of January. So I decree that the next hearing will be on the 25th of January. And if I conclude then that we've got everything in order, for the trial proper to start, then we should be able to begin after mid-February 23. Got it. Well, what is all this about? I, I think what we're seeing, this whole trial is about the attempt to root out co- corruption in the Vatican, the uh, message to all people working in the Vatican that nobody, be you from the lowest official to the top cardinal, because Bechu was Cardinal Bechu was the chief of staff, the the one of the right hand men of the Pope. He was number three in terms. There was the Pope, the Secretary of State, and then there was Bechu. And uh, so that nobody is above the law when it comes to uh, respecting the laws of the of the Vatican City State in regards money, in regards administration, in regards all other things. And so we've seen something that hasn't been seen in the past century, and indeed for centuries, perhaps we've seen a cardinal go on trial. Got it. And, you know, I don't know that these are completely related, but I do see this trial, this effort to kind of get Vatican finance under control and root out corruption. I see it in the context of the Pope's uh, reforms of the Curia, really trying to make sure that things within the Rome, you know, offices of the Vatican are are working properly. Uh, we've seen the Pope, you know, send people to visit uh, certain big Vatican offices, the Congregation for Divine Worship, the Congregation for Clergy. He's really trying to get everything just kind of in, in order in Rome. You know, I think this Pope is going to go down in history as a reforming Pope in a very big way. He's one of four Popes in the last 400 years, I think, to really attempt to reform the Roman Curia. Mm. And he has uh, done it in different ways, right from his first, within three, four months of being elected Pope, he started a process in terms of the finance and how the Vatican finance was done. Then he went to all the other Vatican offices. At the end of the day, he will have to reduce the number of Vatican offices 
that, that were there at the end of the pontificate of John Paul II. There will be a reduction in number of the Department of Vatican offices. He's changing personnel. He's changing the finance. He's changing the culture. And uh, he's brought in outside experts to help. And so I, I think we have a, a reforming pope. And remember, we haven't mentioned it in this, the continual effort that he's making to deal with the whole abuse question, the protection of minors, the protection of uh, vulnerable people, and the protection of women. He's, he's moving into, in, into this area in a big way, I think. So, And then he is also giving women positions in the Vatican, giving them posts of responsibility, which never before have they had. You now have the Secretary General of the Vatican City State, a woman. You have uh, uh, lots of women getting different positions in the Vatican. And th this is really part of his, if you wish, synodality, that we all have different talents. And we, uh, you have men and women, and it's to find a new dynamic in the church where those who have the ability can have the jobs. Yeah. Yeah. So we really see kind of many of the Pope's reforming efforts coming together here. This movement towards synodality, this kind of streamlining of the curia and also bringing it towards greater inclusivity. And then we see the Pope reaching out, you know, trying to foster peace in places as diverse as Iraq and Cyprus and Greece, and even within the U.S. Bishops' Conference, trying to bring them together. Uh, and all of this with the background of, you know, his his recovery from his surgery that has now gone well. So it has been a really, really big year in Vatican news and for Pope Francis. But I think what we can say is that we really see him kind of shoring up a legacy and starting processes to try to move the the Vatican in a more kind of peacemaking, collaborative, synodal direction. Well, it's it's what his role is as the center of unity and orthodoxy in the church. That's right. That's what his task is. And uh, he's taken it very seriously. And uh, he is determined, as long as God gives him life and health, to pursue this path with determination. All right, Jerry, I appreciate getting to talk with you about all of this year's stories, and I hope you have a great Christmas. Thank you, and a very happy Christmas to our listeners. If we don't speak to them again, I don't know. <laughs> next next week, we will have a, a special episode of the New America podcast, Hark, which is all about Christmas carols. That'll be in your podcast feed next week for Christmas. And then after that, we'll be back with uh, a roundup of kind of the end of the year at the Vatican and looking ahead to next year. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This week's episode was produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Production assistance from Vivian Richard at the Jesuit Curia in Rome. Our audio engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org and follow us on Twitter at I-N-S-D-E Vatican Pod. That's inside without the second I, Vatican Pod. And if you want to support our work here on Inside the Vatican, the best way to do that is by purchasing a digital subscription to America Media. You can do that at americamagazine.org slash subscribe. Thanks. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Dully. We'll see you next time.
Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.